opening stages of our study of 1 Peter. Last week, we looked at our author. It will not be the last time we'll be talking about Peter. Obviously, we are studying the book of 1 Peter and looking into his life and uh, experiences and as he relates them in his work here. Uh, in this book, we, he will have to keep referencing him just as we reference John and his purposes and goals and, and uh, concerns as we went through the Gospel of John. We look into 1 Peter and we're going to be revisiting Peter again and again. Uh, but uh, we're going to this morning look not at the author of our book, but the recipients of our book. And this might seem to be very simple but it really is not. It has been deeply uh, complicated uh, because of some more recent work in this that has almost taken it out of the purview of the church. And that is uh, a frightening thing to take a book of the Bible and say, well, this is only for this group of people and to isolate that and to make it uh, more valuable to some than to others. And so I want to address that this morning to a degree. And uh, let's go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to be looking at several verses throughout the book uh, to address the issue of who are the recipients of Peter's letter. And is it uh, something particular to a particular group uh, that we perhaps uh, aren't privy to? Let's go ahead and look at this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace be multiplied. And this is the extent of what we're going to go to through in this portion. We're not even going to get through all of this today because I'm really not going to walk into and deal with the idea of the foreknowledge of God. That's really going to be brought out next week. I really want to talk about who these people are that Peter is writing to, and the re recognition that while the immediate audience in his mind as he writes and on his pen uh, might be distinct, does not mean that that is the extent of his audience that that is all that he is writing to. And so let's talk about this a little bit. And, and to do so, I kind of have to present to you what is being taught in certain circles today. And these circles are uh, messianic circles. They're called messianic Jewish circles. Uh, some of them, I would consider them Judaizers. They're trying to draw Christians back to the law and to the keeping of the law and very similar to what we see in the book of Acts, where Paul arrives in Jerusalem and says, don't you see that all these people are zealous for the law? They're believers, but they're zealous for the law. And so we should accommodate that. We should discourage that. And somehow that zeal for the law has been caught up in our generation among a faction of Christianity, and it has become what is not something new. It is really just a rehearsal, a regurgitation of something very old. And that is the Judaizers that many books of the Bible, particularly the book of Galatians, were written to address. And so they come to a book like 1 Peter and they say, well, this one is particularly for us, and here's why. 
it says to the pilgrims or to the sojourners, uh, to, the, to those that are, are just traveling among, the dispersion. And this word dispersion, this diaspora, the, the scattering. This is, and you see it capitalized in your, in your Bible, the dispersion. Who are the dispersion? Who are these that have been scattered abroad? Who are sojourning uh, throughout Asia Minor? If you go through that list of places, it is largely, I know Asia is one of the distinctions, but it's really describing in the, in the part of the Roman Empire that we would identify with Asia Minor, uh, which include Turkey and going up into uh, the area around the Baltic Sea. And so this is really the region we're talking about uh, of the Roman Empire particularly where we have the work. And so if you know of some things about Asia Minor, you know that uh, Paul went there not on one missionary journey but two. And we also know that the letters to the churches uh, in Revelation are also in Asia Minor. And so when you go through those churches, that's also in that region is today the, the country of Turkey and so Asia Minor became kind of the secondary uh, capital, if you will, of Christianity for a season. Focus in on a city called Antioch. And you know Antioch because that's where Paul and Barnes were sent out towards missions. And they were in the southernmost region there of, of this quadrant or, or large section of the Roman Empire. And so Asia Minor has been an emphasis. We have the book of Ephesians written there, an entire book there. Colossians. Uh, so enormous parts of your scripture have been written, focused in on this group in Asia Minor. And here is no exception. The problem is the terminology that Peter uses has been picked up by these messianic groups and, and by the way, we're Messianic. We believe Jesus is our Messiah. We're really talking about people that are trying to revive a Jewishness to our faith and really focus in on that. And that has become uh, somewhat popular in this day and age. It's also been uh, not only affecting uh, the evangelical and neo-evangelical movement, but even like the Seventh-day Adventists and, and groups like that that uh, are focusing more on becoming more and more Jewish in our worship and in our uh, approach to Scripture. And so he uses this idea of the sojourners of the dispersion. And this diaspora is the scattering. Now, it is true that in the intertestamental period and in the period after the uh, judgment of God on first the northern kingdom of Israel and then on the southern kingdom of Judah, that we talk about the Israelites in terms of their dispersion that they were scattered among the nations into Assyria and then, of course, into Babylon, per, the Medes and Persians, uh, and we, we find the, that scattering. And they really remained scattered. There was some gathering together during the Roman period uh, in, the, in terms of the first coming of Christ. Really nothing compared to what we're seeing in this day and age where we find Jews being, being gathered from all the nations in, back into Jerusalem, this is why we're having these settlements that are causing such a stir there with the Palestinians. And, and this is in fulfillment of prophecy that Israel will overflow her borders because of her populace. And so not only do we have the ingathering of Israel today, but we also have them as having one of the highest birth rates among the modern world. 
uh, of, of any nation, uh, right up there with some of the highest ones. And so we find uh, this resurgent interest in this. And we come to uh, this description of the dispersion. And they say, well, certainly this is referring to the scattered Jews. And the problem here is that the scattered Jews are far beyond the limits of what is described here. And so the, the scattering of the Jews, which happened really uh, many years earlier than this, before the founding of the church, is not probably what Peter is really referring to. Rather, but these people insist on I mean, they have a very strong argument, and I'm going to reference some of their points and try to deal with it, because I want to uh, reinforce the value of this for the church, that this was Peter's primary audience was the church. And he makes it very clear over the course of this book that this book and the, and the, and the scripture that we have presented here is for the church, not for the church of Israel, and not for the, just those uh, Jews that have come to Christ, but for all men. And so we find here, that the dispersion he is likely referring to is not the dispersion of the national Israel. That is not the sojourners he's talking about. That's not the pilgrims he's referring to. I would contend with you that he's actually referring to the scattering of the believers out of Judea by the persecution that we understand was spearheaded by a man named Saul that that scattered believers uh, throughout the world, uh, not only into this area, but in other areas, we find that recorded for us in the back, book of Acts, that they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And one of the communities they settled in was in, in Antioch. And then out of that, they spread out. And of course, we had Barnabas move from Antioch, go over to Tarsus, which is also in uh, Asia Minor, and find Saul, who is now Paul, and bring him in. And we have this, the sharing of the gospel into Asia Minor uh, in that period of time. But it was initiated not by the missionary activity of the book of Antioch, or the church of Antioch, but by the persecution of the church of Jerusalem and Judea that they scattered and went everywhere preaching the gospel. And it is important to recognize that event as a significant one. Now, was the church meeting in the temple? Yes, which means that it was predominantly Jewish or proselytic. That is, they were Gentiles who had become Jews and then became Christians. So they had an interesting journey, right? So they were Gentiles. They knew that the God of Israel was the one true and living God. Uh, they would have become proselytes to Judaism, received circumcision, they had a baptism for that process as well, and come into the Judaistic religion. And then having heard the teaching of Jesus Christ, either from Jesus or from the apostles at Pentecost onward, uh, received Christ as their Savior, received that baptism, the baptism of repentance, and became the Christian church. So the church of Jerusalem wasn't just Jews, but it was Jewish, very clearly Jewish. Those that were proselytized or those that were born Jews. And then they went scattered everywhere because, of course, the mandate of Jesus Christ was that you preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the early church just wasn't doing it. They were meeting in the temple, meeting in the temple, meeting in the temple repeatedly until the persecution then 
they went everywhere preaching the gospel. And I will contend with you, while this formal term, the dispersion, is not frequently used in that respect, it is most often re re referring to the national scattering of Israel, it is certainly within the purview of Peter and his writing to uh, use it with regard to the people of God, the, the believers, and certainly Peter has an interest in the Jewish community. But that does not preclude his interest in a wider community, the community of saints. And this comes to this term, the, the idea of sojourners or pilgrims, and then in verse 2, it starts off, elect. This condition of being elect. And those that would put forward this position contend that that term should be reserved only for those of Israel. That only they are elect. That they are the chosen of God. And they would take us later on into the book. And let's turn there, since we're right there, it's not far off. They would look into a little bit later on in the book, chapter 2, uh, and they would uh, refer to verse 5, and then later on in verse 9. Let's go ahead and read verse 5. We'll deal with these in context later on. But in terms of understanding who we're writing to, it says, You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And those that advocate for that position, this is really a book written to Jewish Christians uh, primarily uh, and almost singularly, would hold, well, nowhere along the line is this a reference, is there a holy priesthood and a whole idea of sacrifices. And again, they're taking something out of context, they're twisting it to their uh, preferences. It is very obvious that this is a spiritual nature uh, that, he, in fact, he uses the word spiritual house, a holy priesthood, and spiritual sacrifices. And that take us out of the purview of the physical sacrifices, the physical priesthood, and the, the physical house of Israel. We are outside of that. He uses the word three times, the concept three times, we are spiritual. We're referring not to the house of Israel. We're not referring to the temple sacrifices. We are talking about something distinct that's built not on, on that. And if there is any underlying document in God's word that we should reference when we come to this, it is the book of Hebrews. Now, to whom is the book of Hebrews primarily written? Well, it's right in the title, right? The Hebrews. Who are the Hebrews? The Israelites. Does that mean the book of Hebrews is also one we should just rip out and just give to our Messianic people and not learn from? No, the whole nature of that is that, listen, Jewish people, Jesus Christ is superior. He's superior to the law. He's superior to angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the high priest. He's superior to the sacrifices. He is superior to all of it. And you dare not draw back from Jesus Christ back into that. The whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to draw us out of a significantly Jewish exercise of faith because Jesus Christ has completed that. He has completed the sacrifices. He has created a new priesthood, a priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. That is what has to be in the backdrop of Peter's mind uh, and should be in the backdrop of our minds. We come to this book and to these terms. What about this house? What about this this sacrifice, what a, 
What do we, what do we, how do we go about this uh, priesthood? Well, it is not one that is built on Aaron. It is built on Jesus Christ. It is not built on the law of Moses. It is built on Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That is the stone. It is not built on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is built on Jesus Christ. That he is the singular source. That he is the one that we are turning to. But these want to take this and say, oh, they would never use these terms referring to the church. And then it gets worse because we get down to verse 9. And they say, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. And then again in verse 11, he uses the same terminology. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And he goes on about their conduct being honorable among the Gentiles. So they take this portion of Scripture again, and they say, can't you see this is referring to a nation? And they ignore what is stipulated here. Uh, that this refers to a generation of Israel, a priesthood of Israel, a nation of Israel. We are his special people. No one else has ever been called God's special people. And I have to ask you, is that true? That no one else has ever been called God's special people? Oh, I hope you know better. I hope you know that there were those who followed after God before Abraham and Jacob that there are those that have been received into Israel who never did receive circumcision, like Pharaoh of Egypt, like Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, like Naaman, that never received circumcision, never became part of the nation, but were definitely men of faith that God was working in and amongst. Were they not his special people? Can we not get beyond that? And so they take these terms in this context, and, and ignore the context, and say, well, you are this nation. And so this book is written uh, almost exclusively to Jewish people to become Christians and to stay Christians. Uh, and again, the sojourners and pilgrims that uh, used here that are distinct in verse 12 between them and the Gentiles. And therefore, uh, we being Gentiles, they're being called out from among us. And again, all of these arguments are being used to support that somehow you as a Christian should also be keeping the law. Please understand the end game of this manipulation of Scripture is to bring a Judaistic view upon us that we are somehow inferior if we are not also keeping the law, which is exactly what was going on in the first century in Jerusalem when Paul arrives there and throughout Galatia, <laughs> hence the book of Galatians, are you going to have to keep the law? And this is shown out, it is borne out, that there are many, not only among Seventh-day Adventists, but others who say, oh, we shouldn't be worshiping on, on the Lord's Day, we should be worshiping on the Sabbath. Uh, and never mind that Saturday isn't the Sabbath, and I can prove to you that Saturday is not the Sabbath. Okay, so they're messed up too. Uh, and so if you think Saturdays are the seventh day, um, you got to be better educated about what the Bible has to say and about what history is. 
because sadly um, we forget that the law predates your calendar. Okay? Just let that sink in a little bit. The law predates your calendar. Uh, and so if you follow that, you'll know that you have to start with the new moon each month, and then you count seven days from the new moon, and that is the Sabbath, which means that you should be worshiping on a different day of the Julian calendar every month, pretty much, if you know the phases of the moon. Okay, and so the new moon is zero, and then you count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and that is the Sabbath. And, and so, no, it is not Saturday. But they have tried to enforce this and when they're in error and try to manipulate us to somehow we are inferior and they are superior by keeping the law. And that's just one instance of the law. They're trying to do the dietary laws, all of this. And, and certainly some of this is a reaction and reactionary theology is always dangerous because it tends to go too far the other direction. That's what's going on. What are they reacting to? The incursion of paganism into many of our forms of worship. And I appreciate that, that that is happening. That it is, it is certain that Jesus Christ wasn't born on December 25th and it has something to do with some other things. Uh, and, and, and I appreciate that, but neither do we have to go the other direction. I also appreciate that the, that the, that the Roman Easter has been disassociated from Passover historically. I understand that. And we can respond to that without going to the other extreme. And balance is very difficult. And so they come to these terms here, and they say, well, certainly this is referring to only Israel and the, and the Christian community being called out of the nations and who into Jewish Christian faith. And again, they're ignoring a backdrop that we've already talked about, that we are also sojourners, that this is not our world, that we are sojourning here as pilgrims, recognizing that heaven is our home, that that is really what's going on. It is not that we are separated from Jerusalem or Judea. That is not where we are sojourning. We are sojourning from our home in heaven. Jesus Christ says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I come again, I'll receive it to myself, and there uh, that we'll be, right? That's, that's, until then we are sojourners. We are pilgrims here. We are traveling. And while he acknowledges, or while he is uh, stipulating that it is these in Asia Meyer that he is writing this letter, we recognize that all Christians are sojourners here. That we are all pil making pilgrimage here, waiting for that blessed hope, waiting for that eternal reward, that we are not looking to get back to Jerusalem, get back to Israel, get back to Judea. That is not what we are called to do, neither physically by moving there, nor spiritually by trying to keep the law. That is not in Peter's mind, not in the forefront, not in the backdrop. Nowhere is that here. But we have this very appealing, very uh, carefully crafted position built on these terms. And I have to ask the question uh, it, in verse 10 that they s kind of ignore, 
Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, Who were once not a people, but now the people of God. It makes it very clear, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this when we get there, that this is not referring to Israel because Israel were a people of God. They weren't identifiable people of God. He says, you were not a people because you were from different peoples. You were from different nations. You were from all kinds of tribes, tongues, language, and you were drawn together to become a new people. And yes, it is appropriate to refer to this as a new nation, as a holy nation, and to refer to a priesthood that is not of the priesthood of Aaron, but of Melchizedek, who, and we are a chosen generation. That is, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ during that period of time. That these are not referring to Israel as though somehow they had an inside track. Certainly they had an advantage. Because, and Hebrews talks about that. You had all of this advantage. How can you miss it? How can you miss Jesus Christ? Yet they did. They denied him. They yelled out, crucify him. They opposed him. Their leadership did. And so Peter was there. Remember? He was there at the fire, at the trial of our Lord. And he cursed his name. He's saying, you who are not a people are now people. This is a description of the recipients that Peter has on his mind and heart. And I'm convinced it is not just Jewish. Was uh, Of all the individuals to write this, certainly Peter has to have on his mind and in his heart all of God's people in Asia Minor as he's writing this, to send this out. And the attention... And focus on this group among New Testament authors is extensive, as I've already shared. Because it was becoming the, the, the primary place of the church. It was moving from Jerusalem into Asia Minor, and then moved from Asia Minor westward. <coughs> Excuse me. And we find this m- movement, and they recognize that we got to invest in these churches there. They're, they're where it's going. It's moving that direction. And so we see that Peter's concern is there and is not for the Jewish faith alone that are up there, but it is also for those, all those in the church, Jewish and Gentile, in their history, in their genealogies. And of course, uh, we know this for two, a couple of reasons. Number one, we recognize that the Jews in that region uh, were destructive. They are the ones that followed Paul from Derby to Lystra. And they are the ones that are instrumental, the Jewish community, in having Paul stoned and drug out of the city and left for dead on a garbage heap. It was the Jewish community that, pro- that promoted that. And so this was their response. And remember that that Paul, everywhere he went there, would go to the synagogue first 
and the Gentiles who were interested in hearing it would surround that synagogue. And, and when he came out, he says, can you come and teach us these things? And the Jews became jealous because of the crowds that he drew in, just as they were jealous of Jesus of his crowds. They were jealous of John the Baptist and his crowds. And so they fomented opposition to the gospel and to these men who preached the gospel. And so we know this region and what it is like. But we also know Peter. And that Peter had this particular investment by God in his life to open his mind to the expansiveness of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is for all men. And of course I'm referring to that season on a rooftop uh, where Peter has this vision that God gives him in preparation for ministry to Cornelius. This is what I have called clean, don't you call unclean. He is called to get up, kill and eat animals that are abhorrent to him to consider killing and eating. Yet God says, do you do that? Because I am opening the door of faith to all men. And I'm going to send you to open that up to Cornelius and that entire experience that as he's preaching, even without expectation, we have the Spirit of God coming upon a completely Gentile audience. <laughs> they weren't proselytes. See, Cornelius had not proselytized to Judaism like the others in Jerusalem had. Uh, he was just an honorable man, gave alms, one another, one true and living God, and and. Uh, God heard his prayers, saw his alms, and sent Peter with some other men to witness this and sent the Holy Spirit on him with the same power that we saw in Jerusalem at Pentecost, not because Cornelius needed to see that, but because Peter needed to see that. Because those that were with him needed to hear them speak in languages that they had not learned, uh, probably Jew, Jewish. They were probably speaking Hebrew. Uh, to the Hebrew people, and so they would know the Holy Spirit has come upon these, this community by faith in Jesus Christ, and that it is far beyond the limits of just Israelites that we should be ministering to. This is the Peter who wrote this book. This is who his audience is. He goes to the Jerusalem Council. This is following Paul's uh, missionary journey, and it is he who stands up in that council, recounts again the, the circumstances of, of Cornelius' conversion and Cornelius and all his household, which means all of his servants and his family members, and that they all receive it. This is not just one man, but an entire household, extended household of Cornelius, a centurion. And so he relates that there in the Jerusalem council, and they go, well, it is obvious then now as a council we conclude that God has indeed opened the door of faith to all men. And so what is the limits of what are required of them? Don't partake of blood, don't participate in idolatry. Right, which really goes back not to the law, but to the flood. These are the things that were instructed to Noah. Okay, and so we, we are going pre-law on this, and so we're not going to encumber the the believers with the law 
Uh, we Jews are still interested in it. We're going to still be zealous for it. And they're going to be zealous for it 10 years later. Uh, but we're going to stay zealous for it. But uh, we're not encumbering others with it. And this is Peter who advocated for that. Because God had put into his experience, into his life, the Cornelius event and the vision that all things are clean in God's sight if God declares them so. And so if we come to this book and somehow think that in the course of this, this is only speaking to those, that those are the elect, that those are the ones, those are the royal nation, that's the, that's the people of God. And somehow we are just, uh, you know, a third wheel put on there, or a fifth wheel. <laughs> we do error. And again, why are men taking this approach to this book and to other books similarly? It is out of arrogance. Why was, why were, was the church in Jerusalem zealous for the law? Because they were comfortable in it and they could walk around in self-righteousness and pride. Say, well, we not only believe in Jesus, we keep the law too. And it's exactly the spirit that I see in those that are trying to do damage to God's word in this age. I not only trust in Jesus, I keep the law too. I don't eat that stuff. I worship on this day. You people follow the other, you people worship on that day. I said, well, according to the calendar of Luke, Jesus rose on the first day of the week, and our calendar did exist then. The calendar we use was in use then, and that was the first day of the week. I have every reason to. And when we come to these people who want to, in their pride, they're really, they're really just <laughs> building themselves up that somehow we are superior Christians by keeping the law. And there's great error there. Uh, when we get to Romans, what does Paul say about these people? He says that they are weak they are weak brethren. They are not mature. They come off as being more mature because they seem to have a, a knowledge of God's word and they, they know Hebrew and they go, this has to be this Hebrew, this equivalent. None of the New Testament was written in Hebrew. Isn't that great? Let me say that again. None of the New Testament was written in Hebrew. So they walk around and say, oh, you mispronounced his name. His name is Yeshua. That says, that's Hebrew. None of the New Testament was written in Hebrew. The only record we have of his name is written in Greek. And yes, you could say that that letter could have a yes sound at the beginning, yeses, or Jesus, but the English conversion of that is Jesus. But you see the spiritual arrogance that it promotes. I have the right name for Jesus. You have the wrong name for Jesus. I'm worshiping on the right day of the week. You're worshiping on the wrong day of the week. That somehow we're the chosen ones and you're the come-alongs. And maybe you'll get into the kingdom of God. Maybe not. But you're definitely inferior to those of us who are keeping the law. And that is the whole thrust of their position here. That the elect ones are those who are keeping the law. 
that the sojourners are sojourners out of Israel. And they essentially proselytize themselves. And Hebrews says, you have endangered your salvation because you've gone back to the law. Galatians says that, oh, I wish you would just cut yourself off instead of doing that. It'd be better to cut yourself off than try to go back to the law. To re-implement circumcision, the food laws, the, the, the sacrificial laws, all of that. Where does it end? And this is the error that we're coming into. And it's infiltrated the book of 1 Peter. And so um, when we come to this, uh, recognize that the great dispersion uh, could very well be the scattering of Israel. But it but has to include in Peter's mind the scattering of the church out of Jerusalem under the persecution that we see recorded for us in the book of Acts. That they went everywhere preaching not the law, but preaching Jesus Christ. And please notice, and we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, the necessity of this. There's a necessity of obedience is one of the major themes of Peter is the necessity of obedience, not obedience to the law. We're going to look at that, but rather obedience to something that is above the law. It's higher than the law. We scoff at the law. It has its purpose. Its purpose was to show us we are sinners and we do not think it's evil, we just know that we're now living in a plane that is higher than that. I'm not worrying about murdering people because I am on a scale of saying I'm not going to hate people. I'm not worrying about, about committing adultery because I'm worried about lusting. And we're going to talk about fleshly lust. That's what Peter's concerned about. He's not going to quote from the, from the Ten Commandments here. He's going to take us well beyond them because we are a holy people. And you will see that word used in 1 Peter extensively. We are the holy ones, the holy ones, the set-apart ones. And if that only refers to Israel, then we might as well get the easy believism, pray the sinner's prayer, and live as we please. Because we'll never get into the inside track because we are not proselytized to the law. There are new classifications within Christianity. Paul says, whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male, female. Those are the identifications that we use on earth that God has obliterated. And it's fascinating in our society that that's what we're going back to, is reemphasizing those and having identity politics. And, and don't think it's just Democrats and Antifa that are committing that. Our president committed that. He committed that. Why? Because he says, well, I'm, I'm going to select a woman as a Supreme Court justice. That's identity politics. You're qualified by something you had no control over. You're born a woman. So they're all guilty of it. Don't think it's just one group and not another group. Jesus Christ comes upon the scene and he says, I don't care if you're slave free, male, female, uh, Jew, Gentile, um, you all are sinners and you need to get saved. Period. And, and that's the kingdom of God. And you're telling me that Peter is going to revert 
into the old and draw us there? No. Peter is about the new. He has taken the church in Jerusalem and instructed them through the working of God that he eyewitnessed in Cornelius at Caesarea by the sea. And, and, and that, that all happened. And Peter's the agent there. In no way is he going to revert now. He's going to accolade the writings of Paul and reestablish them as scriptural in his writing here. And obviously we know of Paul as being the apostle to the Gentiles. Do you really think that Peter is excluding them from his audience? So we come to the themes of, of obedience and of holiness that we are called to. But we're also called in this book also to relationships. And we're going to delve into that a little bit more next week as we talk about the major themes here and address them. Uh, but I want to introduce some of these. And you cannot get into a book that has this much information on relationships and somehow think that I've just driven a wedge between the church that is Jewish and the church that isn't Jewish. When the whole, one of the major elements of Peter's writing is that we have this godly relationship socially between our family members, our, our, our uh, extended relationship between older and younger, between uh, slaves and masters. We're gonna, he spends, for a small book, he spends a lot of time on relationships. And here, having that being one of the major themes, do you really believe that he is trying to drive that kind of a wedge into the church? That I'm not talking to all of you, just you of you who are Jewish. Inconceivable that he would do such a thing. And so we come to this and we conclude that certainly with all that we talked about last week in terms of Peter defining himself by his relationship with Jesus Christ, how in the world would he ever go back and look at his audience and define them not by their relationship with Jesus Christ, but define them by their relationship to Israel? Never. He defines himself, as we saw last week, I am a bondservant of Jesus Christ, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm a partaker, I'm an eyewitness of Jesus Christ, uh, and that's who I am, that, that defines me. And now to define his audience as something different? Oh no, you who are in the church ought to all of you define yourself in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And yes, it's appropriate to use these terms, sojourner, priesthood, nation. We use these terms, we talk ourselves as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, belonging to a kingdom, not of this world. A kingdom, by the way, is the word nation. We are, our citizenship is in heaven. We use this terminology. And God forbid that Peter would have this narrow view that he's only talking to Israelites. When he defines who he is by his relationship with Jesus Christ. And as we look at our relationships one with another within our family and society, uh, certainly the preeminent relationship there that, that 
is the basis of this whole contention of submitting to one another in love is built upon that we have already submitted ourselves to Jesus Christ and his love. That that is the primary relationship that repairs all the rest of the relationships in our lives. That if we follow that principle in, of how we got right with God, with one another, that that works. If this is written only to Jewish people, it destroys that parallel. And we can't study the book at all anymore. Because it's not written for you. It's only written for us. Nonsense. And then, one of the third major thing we're going to be talking about a lot more next week because my time is quickly fleeting, and that, that uh, is going to be the suffering of the saints and the necessity of enduring it. These three primary themes we're going to be developing over the course of the study of this book. And I want to begin by saying these three themes are for all of us in the church. These are for all of us. Not a select group amongst us. Just like salvation is for all men, not a select group among all men. So this instruction is for all the church, not a select group within the church. And those that want to do this kind of injury to God's word, uh, we need to turn away from them. Because this is falsehood. This is introducing error. This is Judaizing. And like Paul says to them in Galatia, I wish they'd just cut themselves off. I really wish they would stop identifying themselves as, with Jesus Christ at all. Because they're trying to add their keeping of the law to the work of Jesus Christ who has completed the law. And that is error that the Bible consistently speaks against. This is whitewashing sepulchers. White and clean on the outside and dead in the inside. Because we have not accepted the righteousness of Christ as sufficient for my holiness. No, this book is not an exclusive book. It is an inclusive book for all those who were not a people of God, who are now a people of God. And this is the ones that need to be receiving these instructions. There are several passages along the way that really continue to point us in that direction. And again, uh, I want to just close with verse, chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. Because this is another definition of the people he's talking to. He's knowing that you, all right, that means his audience, you, were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received from, by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. This is the audience to whom Peter writes. The ones who are redeemed, not by the law. <laughs> I, I like the fact that he doesn't even talk about the law because it's not even on his radar in this book. It really isn't. What is the things he says people are looking to be redeemed by? 
corruptible things like silver and gold. You think that's going to buy you back out of salvation? No. But your aimless conduct by tradition from your fathers? Yes, that could be some reference to the traditions of Judaism, but we all have traditions we receive from our parents that are, again, just a happy accident. They had nothing to do with you. You had no choice over that matter. You had no choice what the religion of your fathers was, what the traditions of your home were. You had no choice over that. So why glory in it? Why cling to it? I remember when my family came out here one time uh, many, many years ago to have uh, Christmas in New Mexico with us, and we usually travel back there, and, and how devastated my father was that I did not carry on the Christmas tradition that he introduced me to as a child. I just kind of shrugged at it. I said, well, it's just a tradition, and I had decided to have my own. That was, your tr- that was your decision. This is my life. And so if all we are doing is being redeemed by traditions that have just happened because I was born in this family, and this is what they believe, and just think about how many people, when they hear the gospel respond, and I ask them about their faith, they say, well, I'm Catholic. I say, well, why? Well, my family's always been Catholic. I'm this. Why are you a Democrat? Because I've always been a Democrat. Why are you, my family's always been that. Think about how many answers to questions are all built upon the traditions of your fathers. We're going to be investigating that when we get to this passage. But no, who are the recipients of this letter? Those who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's his audience. And if you fit yourself into that category of people that you have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, everything in this book is applicable to you. And every term in this book is applicable to you. And we'll look at the preciousness of the priesthood of, of, that God has called us into. We'll look at the preciousness of being the, in the kingdom, the nation of God. We'll look at being pilgrims and sojourners. We'll look into all of these because they are absolutely required for us to endure the suffering that this world is going to bring against us as we wait patiently for the completion of our hope that is incorruptible and undefilable and reserved in heaven for us. And so we walk in obedience because we've been appointed to it. We're going to be studying these three major themes in this book at various times and in various emphasis, but we'll be visiting them again and again. But I want to introduce them today as we consider who we're writing to. We're writing to those who are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. Writing to you. Let's pray.